and welcome to the Careers by Design podcast. I'm Sharon Belden-Castingway, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today I'm joined by Joshua Boger, Class of 1973. Uh, Josh, to start out, why don't you tell me a bit about your current professional role? So I'm, uh, uh, I'm on the board of Vertex Pharmaceuticals, a company that I founded uh, in uh, 1989 uh, and ran for 20 years so-called retired uh, about seven years ago actually to take on the chair of the Wesleyan board but I continue on the uh, Vertex board and chair that board's uh, science and technology committee so that's my major professional uh, commitment I have a large number of nonprofit commitments as well okay uh, there are two books that have been published the billion dollar molecule and the antidote that chronicle your career with the company that you founded Vertex the Billion Dollar Molecule has some very interesting references to your childhood and your early interest in science, and I wondered if you could speak a bit about that for us. Well, um, I think all, all books and all stories are stories that select from the totality of reality. So uh, stepping back a bit, I considered I had a very normal childhood. Uh, I played baseball. Um, I... Uh, tortured my uh, younger brother. I was tortured by my older brothers. Uh, uh, grew up in a, in a rural area. We had a large garden. So all of that is all true. Mm -hmm. Now, under, uh, alongside of that, I had a longstanding interest in science, longstanding meaning as early as I can remember, that was, I would say, passively encouraged by my parents, particularly my father, who uh, was a, a trained as a chemist, but in textile chemistry. Mm. And so when I say passively encouraged, he would just occasionally bring home from somewhere something scientific and hand it to me, often without a lot of explanation. Uh, uh, I had a very early age, I had a, I had a, a poli-science laboratory with plants growing and chemistry experiments and small animals breeding, uh, so it wasn't any particular science. And uh, he, he knew I had that, but I don't believe he ever went into this laboratory. Uh, it was over the garage. But for instance, he, a typical, he would, he'd come home from work and han he handed me a flask of mercury, about <laughs> 10 or 12 pounds of mercury, which is actually not that much mercury, but it's, it's, it was pretty heavy. I remember I could hardly lift it. And just, he said, this is mercury. I said, I, I know what it is. I can tell what it is. I know what mercury looked like, even though I'd never seen mercury outside of a thermometer. Mm. Uh, and we had never broken a thermometer as far as I remember. And he, all he said was, if you heat it up, watch out. You know, it, it will oxidize. And he knew I knew what that meant. I was probably 10. Uh, but otherwise, uh, it's pretty safe. It turns out he's true. It, he's accurate. You mm -hmm. Parents now would go, oh, and the hazmat teams would probably <laughs> scream and yell, but um, don't do this at home, but you can actually drink a glass of mercury. It's actually not going to harm you at all. It's the compounds of mercury that are dangerous, um, and the oxidized, oxidized mercury can get into the air. But um, And he just let me experiment. So that was what I mean by passively encouraged. I so I... I I, but I thought of that exactly like I thought of building a fort in the woods mm -hmm. or going down by the creek and and catching tadpoles. It was not, I didn't have this weird 
to my mind, weird interest. It was all part of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Understanding the world around you. The fun of it, the, 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 the great fun of it. I had, uh, I had a rock collection of, that I made myself. I didn't you know, go to a store and buy rocks. I went out in the world and collected them. Right. That's great. So why did you choose a liberal arts college when the time came? Well, perfectly consistent. Uh, I didn't think about this as, uh, I didn't think of my interest in science as something that needed a specialty encouragement. That's not how I got into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't, um, it wouldn't have, occur- it actually didn't occur to me to, to go to a you know, research university. I, I was interested in lots of things and still am interested in lots of things. So uh, it was natural that I gravitated toward places that had lots of opportunities. Science had to be one of them. And that was mm-hmm. something I did know and check out about uh, uh, about Wesleyan. One of the places that um, it was an alternative for me for Wesleyan was was Caltech. I never went, to, I never visited Caltech, but they made a very big pitch for me, and and their pitch was, we do more than science here. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was. They made the pitch as a liberal arts place. That's very interesting. And how did your interests evolve while you were at Wesleyan? Well, I uh, I started out um, knowing that I would take some science courses, but um, I got very interested very early on in um, in philosophy. Uh, mm-hmm. Something I I'm not sure I ever read uh, uh, in any great formal way before. Um, through the humanities course, it was taught at the time. It was the uh, it was a freshman course called humanities that was. A reading course. It wasn't the great books, but it was uh, reading and writing uh, around a variety of topics, and quite quite a number of them had a philosophical bent. Uh, so I I just thought this was great because there were so many ideas coming at me, uh, and ended up from that course um, uh, planting the idea that I might want to major in philosophy, and I actually did. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, and but I didn't lose my interest in science, and uh, by that time chemistry was the science that felt the most um, natural to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do like to get results, and I like the I like quantitative things. Mm-hmm. And at the time, harken back, it's not true now, but at the time biology was not very quantitative, and so uh, although I was interested in the biologic world. It seemed like it was a disc- still a descriptive world, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I love math, but not quite as much as my my youngest son does. Uh, and I and I thought math was I felt math was a little too arid, uh, mm-hmm. not enough connected with the world. I was wrong. I'm wrong about that. But at the time, so I ended up in chemistry, and physics was just too hard. <laughs> uh. You went to graduate school straight out, or did you take time off? No, I went to uh, to Harvard Chemistry Department straight from um, straight from Wesleyan, a pathway that was uh, certainly uh, aided by the fact that my organic chemistry teacher was Max Tischler, who was uh, uh, out of Harvard and still very well connected to Harvard. So um, Max had told me a lot about Harvard Chemistry Department, uh, and uh, so it was a uh, 
I can't even remember whether I applied anywhere else, but it was a okay. very natural, uh, natural thing for me to do. Was that, was your research focused almost preordained by the work you were doing here, your work with Max Tischler and then his providing that road? Well, it was very different, but the, the theme was uh, while I was here, my research uh, in chemistry was around uh, enzyme reactions and really around the mechanism of enzyme reactions. And we knew so little back then, uh, rudimentary compared to what people know now, but the, the whole, they, we were still trying to explain the magic of, of enzymes and uh, didn't really have a firm grasp on that. So there was a lot of interest in how do enzymes grab onto things and how do they use that grabbing on to make reactions go faster. And there was something known, but it, it was not as much as we understand now. And so I, that idea translated over into my into my graduate research, but from a from a quite different perspective. And I did uh, mostly organic chemistry, making enzyme models um, at at Harvard. And what was your thinking as you were completing that program? You're finishing up your dissertation. Where did you think you were going to go from that? I was almost a hundred percent sure that I wanted to go into the pharmaceutical industry, that was Max's influence. Okay. Uh, uh, I had zero interest uh, in the academic route, um, and any interest that I had in that direction was, I think, tamped down by my lab mate uh, at Harvard, who was a postdoc, who I thought was brilliant, uh, and he was very, very excited postdoctoral year where I was across the bench from him. And then he got to the second year where he was thinking about going into academia and he had to have his research plan. And he had a very exciting research plan. The closer he got to getting an ac academic position, that research plan kept getting cut down and cut down mm -hmm. and cut down to the doable and the fundable. Um, and by the time he actually got an academic position and he's, he's had a successful career, um, I thought it wasn't an interesting project anymore. <laughs> so I, I saw the constraint of, of, the, of the academic research environment through that lens and said, I think I'd rather tap into the kind of excitement that Max Tischer told us all about in, in organic chemistry, mm -hmm. where teams of people tackled problems much bigger than they could imagine solving themselves, but they were really important problems. And then what did you actually find when you got to Mark? I found pretty much this environment that was promised, uh, very uh, team-oriented, project-oriented, but also with the kind of flexibility, or at least I took the flexibility, um, to uh, do work on some of my own ideas. Now, it turned out that I was, uh, I was probably very fortunate about the particular time that I joined Merck. Max actually helped me get that job. This is now we, you know, we, I'm, I've left Wesley and I spent uh, five plus years at Harvard and still Max Tischler is still helping me, helping me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Max actually helped get me the job at a time when there was a hiring freeze uh, at Merck and that, that meant they weren't hiring anybody. Somehow Max negated that and I did interview and got a job offer. I didn't know it. I didn't know any of this. I didn't know there was a hiring freeze. 
But when I showed up the first day for work, they actually literally didn't know I was coming <laughs> because they had laid off the HR department. Oh, my gosh. Okay. There was no HR department. And so um, when I left 11 years later, they found out that I had never signed any of those entry papers you're supposed to sign <laughs> it the first day. But the you other really worked there the whole time. The <laughs> other consequence is they weren't quite ready for me to join a project. So while they were trying to figure out what project I joined, which I eventually joined, I actually had some time in the lab and I started another project by myself. Okay. Which then I think three or four years later was the largest project in the company. That's were you still involved with it at that I was involved, but okay. I was just a small cog in the... I, I, they didn't give me the project. It wasn't. This wasn't a Horatio Alger story. I didn't take over the, right. the department. I was still just involved with it, but it was the largest project in the company. And I started it because for a few weeks to a few months, they weren't quite ready for me. Right, okay. And how did your position uh, evolve while you were at Mark? Um, I, I started the lab by myself. Um, my very first day, the uh, guy who emptied the trash and washed the glassware uh, introduced himself and said, how much do you make? And I told him, he said, I make more than you do. <laughs> <laughs> so I worked very hard in the, very hard in the laboratory because I love lab work. And I got an assistant, I think after a year and got another assistant. These were master's level people with five to 15 years of experience. They were fantastic. Uh, but I love working in the laboratory. And then I had someone ta uh, tap me on the shoulder and introduced himself and said he was the head of research uh, uh, at Merck's research lab uh, in Montreal. And um, basically, would I consider coming from Pennsylvania, where I was in the Merck lab, to the Merck lab in New Jersey and heading a group? So I literally was tapped on the shoulder. I okay. wasn't after that. I didn't know it existed. Um, and it was to take over all of uh, immunology and inflammation chemistry for the whole company. Was that an area that interested you? Absolutely, but I didn't know much about it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, but I had been fortunate to stumble into uh, in the project that I was on, I had stumbled and the one that I had started that it became the largest project in the company. In both cases, I had, I'd had some good results, but I think he was most impressed by the fact that I had started this project myself mm -hmm. that had become a large project. Right, right. And a, a lot of that was just, I don't think it's breaking down barriers. I actually didn't see the barrier, mm -hmm. uh, to do it. Uh, I'm not really confrontational, but I am sometimes. Um, I sometimes don't notice what other people consider a barrier. Mm. Barriers of a big corporate environment. I no one told me I could perceived barriers. <laughs> no one told me I couldn't start a project, mm -hmm. so I started a project. Right. You know, other people might have said, "You should have asked permission," in which case the answer would have been no. But right. you have to ask the question to get the no. Um, I never, I never asked the question and I never thought of it. I was, wasn't rebelling. I was just, I was just playing down by the pond mm -hmm. or up mm -hmm. over the garage. And how long were you at Merck total? Was there a 10 and a half years, oh, 10 and a half years. Yeah. What led to your decision to leave? Well, so, you know, fast forward, I'm in, I'm, I've now gone, uh, after about, uh, six years, I've gone from, 
medicinal chemistry lab where I had a you know a small number of assistants and then was working on a project or two to heading all of all of uh, of the chemistry of immunology and inflammation, which was Merck's largest therapeutic category at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had proposed two years before I left, I had proposed to um, the management um, of the research labs that they consider reorganizing at least some portion of research around a new organizational model uh, that would integrate not only the existing sciences, but the newer sciences like molecular biology and computation that Merck certainly had available to it, Mm -hmm. but were kind of ancillary new ideas that had come in from the outside over the previous years. Um, And I said, they, if those are going to be successful, they need to be integrated in. And oh, by the way, we need to integrate chemistry and biology together. They're in separate departments now. Mm-hmm. I run a chemistry department. I spend all my time trying to coordinate chemistry and biology. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be a better idea if we organized around projects and put the people together so that their identity was not their discipline, but rather their project? So they had agreed to that. And I was, uh, I was being given half of the uh, research hires in in the in Rahway, at least part of the company for the next year. But I decided that I could do it faster if I started uh, out from scratch. Not because I didn't have the support of the management, which I did, mm-hmm. and I had tremendous support from the top, and I had tremendous support from all of the new. PhDs and postdocs that I was hiring, uh, not so much from the existing folks, but some. But I was ha- getting a lot of resistance from the research and other management in the middle mm, okay. who did not want things disrupted and mm-hmm. weren't particularly happy that I was taking a different pathway that was threatening the structure of what they were managing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I wasn't confrontational about it. I didn't say you should get rid of them right. or st- stop what they're doing. And all of my, all of my um, uh, plans were additional resources. So you could say it wasn't a zero-sum game. But uh, I was getting a lot of resistance, passive and not passive resistance. Um, and it came down to uh, things that were just taking a lot of my time. I, I strung the first... Um, I think the first computer network in a research lab in a pharmaceutical company uh, after going to the IT department and saying, um, I, I want to create a computer network for my scientists. And there were no computer networks for anybody except finance. Um, and they were all on Wang computers. And uh, and there was a digital computer network for the, the, the theoretical folks, but ordinary lab scientists didn't touch a computer. Um, and I said, I, I want to create a lab network. And they said, well, we'll do that for you for, I think the number was $300,000 for 10 computers. And I said, well, I can do it cheaper. And they said, no, you have to do it the way we do it. And I, I didn't have $300,000 in my budget. Uh, so I went down to Radio Shack for 50 bucks and got a punch down pad and used the wires in the phone 
that aren't being used. Your phone wire, you only use two out of four phone, phone wires in your phone. I use the other two wires patched down in the basement, created a network for, for $50. Uh, <laughs> a clever workaround. <laughs> so, so it, but in some cases I couldn't get a workaround to that kind of, you know, you have to do, you have to do it this way. Can't be done. You can't bring, you can't bring a graphics computer into a biology lab. They have to be in this kind of environment. Uh, you know, it's just a hundred things like that when you're trying to do things differently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you can't have mole- we can't have molecular biology in a chemistry department because molecular biology has to be all behind certain con- control doors. I said, yeah, I can do that. No, but all those doors have to be in a certain building because that's where we've decided to do it. And you just go on and on with those kind of, I, I call it middle management sludge mm-hmm. issues. And I so I... I said, I, I know how to do this now. I'd been there 10 years. I had been managing a group of um, nearly 100 people for two years. I wasn't worried about how to manage folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I can do it myself. And so, so you did. <laughs> so I walked out the door with nobody and no patents uh, and uh, a very understanding wife who knew that she was going to have to give up her medical practice, uh, and we had a little baby and one on the way. <laughs> but she supported the decision. She did. She did. Uh, she never asked me. She only asked me the question. She always asked me, is there, are you happy? And that was, that's, by the way, the career advice that I would give everybody. That's the question you need to ask yourself. Are you happy? Good advice. So tell me about the early days in Vertex. Was it were you able to start what you were hoping to start in those early days? Yeah, it was. Um, uh, I didn't expect I would go from a hundred people to a hundred people's productivity the next day. Uh, so it was me for four months, uh, raised enough money to hire. I, I didn't consider it ethical to try to convince someone else to come until I had money. Mm-hmm. So um, I raised what was the outrageous sum at the time of ten million dollars, just on an idea. Uh, and then we started hiring. I was hiring people. It took nine months of hiring people before we had a laboratory, mm. and so it was almost a year before we could do an experiment. Uh, so that year was I knew was going to take that time. But then, if you fast forward two years later, we were way ahead of where I would have been, and I mm. stayed, um, both in terms of the organization, what people were doing, the ideas we were working on. So. Um, it worked out pretty close to what what I had thought. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's pretty clear it was a good idea. In terms of the management structure as well? Management structure, the audacity of the problems that mm-hmm. we were taking on, mm-hmm. um, um, the filter with which we put through ideas was very rigorous and very directed around this notion of, of fundamentally changing people's lives. Uh, we we had people we had early scientists who who um, who had ideas to make a make an improved version of an existing drug and that we could have done technically mm-hmm. and we could have gotten it approved and I'm sure it would have been valuable but it wasn't important enough mm-hmm. and so we decided not to do those kind of problems. Mm-hmm. Nothing, there's nothing unethical about doing those kind of problems. Mm-hmm, I just want to mm-hmm, make clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, we used to joke in the early days, you know, we don't do toenail fungus. 
and we don't do hair growth. Uh, I didn't have a lot of hair then. Uh, it, was thin, <laughs> it was thinning as nice, nice thin as it is now. There's nothing wrong with toenail fungus or hair growth. It's just we don't do that. Right. We're doing things that are going to change people's lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was there a specific event that made you realize that you personally had become successful in your career? I'm not sure I've had that event yet. But Fair enough. <laughs> actually, because I, I, it just isn't a goal. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm not even I'm not even looking for that. Uh, I so I successful. You know, I really when you say that, it's not the first time anyone's asked me the question or put that to me. But every time someone says that, it literally I don't I haven't parsed the events that way. It's not something I'm looking for. Do you have a definition of it? Of what it would mean to you personally? Well, I can tell you the times where I where I've been closest to saying, "Wow, I," you know, feeling proud that I've been successful. But it has to do with reading a letter from a patient. Mm. Uh, we had uh, uh, we had a briefly the top drug for a couple of years. We had the top drug to cure hepatitis C, mm-hmm. and uh, we were supplanted, God bless America, by a better compound from another company. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the two years, we I remember getting a letter um, that these letters would come into medical affairs at the time. We were probably about a thousand people, so I didn't see a lot of the front line. But uh, this one they passed up to me, uh, and I opened it up, um, and you could hardly read it because it looked like somebody had dropped water all over the letter, and it was written in ink. Uh, you know these splotches mm-hmm. on it, <clears throat> and I and I puzzled it through, and it was a letter written by. Uh, a father of of two girls married standing at the top of a lift of in Tahoe ready to go down the ski lift who said I should have been dead now mm-hmm. and your drug enabled me to ski down this mountain with my two daughters and my wife and I'm okay I'm cured of this disease mm-hmm. that was going to kill me uh, thank you very much sealed at the top of the lift skied down with the letter, put it in a mailbox. Oh, wow. I thought, okay, I'm, I've been successful. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think was the most stressful part of running Vertex? Um, as, a, as a CEO of a, of a, of a high-growth technical and particularly the medical area where we just we know so there's so much uncertainty. Um, there were many, many times where we had um, setbacks of a variety of kinds, either technical setbacks or uh, even financial disappointments, where uh, it was very important for me to act decisively to deal with the setback in a realistic way, but to not show anything but confidence that we could deal with it. <laughs> and and I think the most stress I felt is when um, that latter half of was very hard because sometimes they were very they were they were very serious. We had uh, the ones that I can talk about, <laughs> there are lots of them. <laughs> but ones I can talk about, for instance, we had a drug um, that I thought was just going to be the, breakthrough in arthritis treatment uh, 
because of a mechanism and it looked fantastic in animals and we were in clinic and everything was going fine in clinic and nothing was going wrong in the clinical trials and in our very late and long-term animal studies that you do in parallel with the clinical trials um, there was a finding in the brains of dogs that looked irreversible and the scariest thing is there was no warning for it. That's, those are the scariest toxicology results mm -hmm. you have. Because even bad toxicology that you have a warning for is fine. You just look for that warning in people. And if warning comes, you know something's wrong. But if it didn't give a warning in the dogs, then it might not give a warning in the people either. And so we had to just close that program down. And to this day, I don't know whether or not um, that was scientifically necessary it was re it was necessary from a regulatory and legal point of view we had to do what we had to do but i felt like uh wow this was our best work and it just got blown away and it was you know it's not it's not the dollars it was it was 20 or 30 people's half of their career mm. and it was the best work that they had done it's the best work that they'll maybe ever do mm -hmm. um, and it just got and so I, I could be mourning for the future rheumatoid arthritis patients. I could be mourning for the researchers whose work, um, mm -hmm. but I didn't have I, I didn't have the luxury to mourn. I can't mourn those things. Right. I have to say, okay, here's what we do. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. You go here. You go here. We'll be fine. Wall Street, of course, is going to completely panic. Our stock's going to go down. 40%, which it did, uh, you know, all of your incentive options are going to be worthless that you've, that you've been counting on to build your house two years from now. And all of those things, I just had to say, it's not a problem. It's okay. We're going to get through this. And I had to have a plan to make that real. So you go through five or 10 of these, that's stress. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions out there about science careers? How do people get that wrong, what that's like? Well, my wife had the biggest misconception when we met. She was a history and literature major from uh, Harvard. Uh, we met when I was in graduate school. Um, now, she's a she was pre-med, but she's the pre-med who comes through history and literature. And until she met me, she thought she had the social career and I had the solitary career. And she quickly realized that not even close, we had the best parties. The whole enterprise of science is completely a social experience. And she was in her history and literature, she was the she was in a monastery. Uh, so, so so the idea that the humanities, and I'm not I'm not saying that everyone in humanities feels this way, but many people, her sister is a, it teaches uh, French literature at University of Connecticut, and it's a solitary life, mm -hmm. spending your time in the catacombs of some dusty French archive for months on end. And science is never that way. It's never that way. It's always social. It's always about um, five people getting six people's of work done or seven people's worth of work done because you work together, because you like each other, because you um, 
expose your uncertainties, scientific and intellectual uncertainties to the other person and they can, they can buck you up. And she had no idea this was true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she lives vicariously in this, in this, this science, science world. So, you know, the idea that scientists are the, that's the social, that's the, the most social activity we have on the planet is science and technology. There's no question. Was there ever a point where you started to identify yourself as more of a businessman than a scientist? Did that change over ever? Really Again, it's really it goes back to the the earliest question you asked, uh, and the, the sort of my image of I didn't make a distinction between mm-hmm. garage the garage and the uh, experiments in chemistry and playing with tadpoles in the creek uh, or playing baseball. Uh, and I just don't make a distinction. Uh, I, I annoy my my business friends by 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 reminding them that I've never taken a business course in my life. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, I've chaired the audit committee of a public company for a number of years. Uh, I've been CEO of a company. I've right. raised four billion dollars in the public markets. Uh, I I I don't think this stuff's that hard. So uh, that really annoys them. So that's my smart-ass <laughs> scientist answer to that question. <laughs> uh, but to me, the the reason why I paid attention enough to get the vocabulary and to get the secret handshake uh, of how to, how to understand what's going on on the business side is because I wanted the scientific results. So it was, right. the, it was the way to get leverage um, to, uh, on the problem that I'm trying to solve. So... I just think it's a fantastic mistake of of anyone in the in the science enterprise not to understand how the enterprise is supported, uh, how to what are the, who are the people who are most successful at support of their science. You might want to learn how they're doing it, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. whether it's in the academic sphere or not. That's not because you quote like business; it's because you like science. So that's the way I thought of it. Now, there are some very interesting. Uh, aspects to many business problems uh financing i i do i do like to read complicated uh p l's uh and read the footnotes at the back of uh of uh, of uh, 10ks and things like that but uh that's an acquired taste mm-hmm. uh, uh it's it's i got into it so i could enable the science to get done that that i thought needed to get done to transform the lives that I wanted to transform. How are you feeling about the future of scientific inquiry? Well, you know, it comes and goes in the, in the zeitgeist. Uh, uh, I, 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 I am pessimistic that uh, right now that we have the education system in this country to educate the people we need to educate, not only the people who are going to be scientists, but the people who are going to impact the lives of the scientists who decide to be scientists so I'm worried about both of those cadres of people um, the level of level of, of it's not ignorance because that that really is uh, makes it is too trivial the level of misunderstanding around around what the principles of science are and how important it is uh, is is vast uh, and we are uh, we are uh, you know fundamentally a democracy so if the Fifty-one percent of the people decide that this is all a waste of time. 
you know, there are lots of ways of going into the dark ages. You, it can be, it can be, you know, rats with a disease, or it can be people voting it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I do worry about that. Uh, uh, at the same time, on my on, on my happier days, uh, my goodness, the opportunities in front of us in the sciences that I know anything about, and many of the ones that I don't know anything about but but read about. Uh, I've never been larger. I mean, you know, gravity waves and uh, um, uh, it's, you know, this, that's hugely, who, who thought we had this window into that part of the physics world? Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be hugely important. The data abilities uh, in biologic data are just, uh, are, are going to change all of our lives. Um, so, so many opportunities in front of us. Uh, at the time that I think we're actually, as a society, not only not doubling down, we're 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 not doing even the maintenance work on our capability mm. to take advantage of of these things, which is kind of sad because we see it as as a dichotomy. I think um, I have I have I I had a great conversation with Lin Manuel Miranda about some of the research I was doing, and he was fascinated by it because of the person he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there isn't a conflict uh, here. Joshua Boger, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Careers by Design, The Interviews. Production by Sharon Belden-Castingway. Music by Andrew Santanello. Interested in designing your own career? Check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Wesleyan University website.